0: So, good evening. Another day, practice. So tonight I wanted to talk about impermanence and letting go. And I wanted to use uh, a teaching that I heard when I was on retreat myself in February at Spirit Rock um, by the Fantastic James, he read it. <laughs> and it just really struck me, and I got a copy of it and I kept reading it. And for the last maybe six months, this has been a teaching that I've come back to, something about it deeply resonated. So I used this as the, the basis of the talk. And just to say that there's a lot of different types of teachings and um, this one is kind of a cutting through teaching, you know. It reminds me of um, Manjushri, who's in a, t- a Tibetan deity, and Manjushri carries a giant sword, and the sword is the cut through delusion, right? So at first it can go, "Ow!" you know, carrying a, a weapon, you know. So this teaching kind of has that flavor. You know, you'll get a sense of it uh, as I read it. I'll read it through one time, and then I'll refer back to it. So it's called The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed, as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she's only wild, and her compassion is exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. So it's a little dramatic. (laughs) Uh, Whoa. In some way. And that's what struck me about it. It was something to the right, to the core of things. So impermanence. So as the beginning of this piece says, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. And so in some ways, impermanence, I think in every way, impermanence is at the very core of what the Buddha taught. To see the truth of impermanence directly and clearly leads us onto the path of letting go. Letting go is the opposite of clinging. And by now you might have glimpsed that clinging is the root of suffering, as Carol was talking about last night, this craving. The Buddha pointed this at the root of everything is grasping, is clinging. And so all of the teachings of the Buddha work together. You know, the Buddha was such a master. He spoke to so many different types of people in his many years that he taught several different techniques and ways. But everything is coming back on some level to this can we let go? Can we let go? Right? So he might teach about the five aggregates. That is so we understand that it's a system that's happening, that we're actually not a part of it. It's just going on. So we begin to let go of clinging to forms. And every teaching in some way is trying to point us to let go, that this is is not to be clung to. So the teachings describe the same thing in thousands of different ways. I always notice that, like, ah, this is the same teaching. And all these Dharma talks actually have the same flavor, but every night we sit and it's like, oh, because it's from a different perspective. James will say it this way, Guy will say it this way, Sally this way, I'll say it this way. But all of this is pointing to can we be present and let go? Right? Can we be here? So this idea of impermanence is part of the Buddha's teachings on the three characteristics. Basically, it's the three insights. What we are practicing here is insight meditation. So we say insight into what? Right? What are we trying to see here? Basically, the, the truth about suffering, impermanence, and no self. Right, Egolessness. So this is the real heart of the matter. And you could say that the characteristics is an interesting word. We don't use that that much. But you could say that um, these are the three marks of being a human being. So this is what the Buddha noticed. You come here. You're born on the planet. This is these three qualities of this existence. So example is a characteristic of fire is heat. right? So a characteristic of being a human being is you are subject to impermanence. This is the way it is, not just us, everything becomes subject to impermanence. So this is profound. So this is what we're doing here, is we're looking at these things. And as we sit in the present moment, these insights arise again and again. Impermanence, no self, dukkha, right? You report these in your interviews. Ah, oh, today I let go, right? Today I saw that it's not about me. I let go of my story. So over and over again, you're reporting these. So insight, again, arises. And insight leads to freeing the mind, free of its habitual clinging. Because when we see the truth, we let go, right? we stop, oh, wait a minute. I don't have to hold on to this. The mind starts to become free when it sees the truth of things. Sees the truth. Insight is seeing truth. So, one of the things I think might sometimes trip us up a little bit is this, this idea of ignorance. You know, we hear this a lot in the Buddhist teachings like, we're ignorant of the, the truth of reality. Some people will be like, I'm not ignorant, you know, because we have a lot of knowledge. But knowledge is very different. You know, many of us might come here for different backgrounds and, you know, we have knowledge. And knowledge is different than wisdom, very different than wisdom. Some people on the planet right now who may have tremendous knowledge are those who are building nuclear weapons. So you see, knowledge doesn't necessarily mean wisdom. It just means we're knowledgeable about topics. So wisdom is different. So a few months ago, when I was in Washington, DC, with the Dalai Lama at this uh, 10-day teaching, he talked about ignorance also as being, it's through this not knowing that we get stuck again and again, and we create suffering. right? And he said there's two ways in which we don't know. Some things we just don't know, right? It's just like we're, we're children in some way. We just don't understand things. And that's okay. That's ignorance just kind of we just don't know yet, and we, we can learn through our practice. But he talked about a more dangerous form of ignorance, and he said that's knowing wrongly, <laughs> convinced that you do know something, and it's not the truth. And he said now we're getting into dangerous waters with this one because we act from that. And not only do we act, we act wholeheartedly with our whole body, speech, and mind. So in some way, this knowing wrongly is also the root of the turmoil. We fail to see things as they are. So as we grow in our practice and we learn more and more, we understand more and more intuitively, the mind begins to heal and purify. And our mistaken views uh, become clear. We begin to understand and we see the truth. So one of the biggest areas is that we believe that things are real. We believe that they're real. Not only do we believe that they're real, we believe that they're lasting. We believe deeply that things last. This is something that we... It's habitual. It's something that we all grow up with. We, our whole society is involved in this. So this habit is very powerful. You know, collectively as a community, we all think things last. And I'll explain more about that. So... Actually, I had... I think I might have dropped it, but I had a little flower. Did you see? Ah, so I wanted to, seeing is believing, right? So we have to see impermanent. So here I have a little flower, right? We've seen flowers many times. We know flowers are impermanent, right? We've seen this again and again. You pick a beautiful bouquet of flowers, you buy flowers, every day you watch them slowly begin to fade. Right in the beginning, they smell good and they're beautiful. And then, if you even leave them too long, they get really bad and they even smell. And you're like, "Ugh, get these out of here!" Right? We see their impermanent nature clearly, so we don't cry when flowers die. Right? We think, "Oh, that's the nature of a flower." Right? They don't last. This is important that we see because we mistake our own experience as somehow being lasting. So. Everything is like the flower. The Buddha is pointing to this. Everything. It has a certain time, breathes and moves and does what it does, and then it passes away. So basically, everything is in a constant state of flux, a constant state of change, moment to moment to moment. But we don't always see this, because at this particular moment, everything feels stable. right? We're all sitting here. But really, the Earth is moving around the sun at this very moment at 67,000 miles per hour, right? We're on a giant rock flying. (laughs) It's like, huh, this is another level of truth. We're also moving with the sun around the center of the galaxy and moving with our galaxy as it drifts through intergalactic space. So we're moving it bigger and bigger and bigger. Movement is happening, so it's important that we step back and expand our view a bit. You know, we're so used to kind of like this little box that we live in, this little world of me, I, mine, what's going on with me today, you know, that we often forget to step back and that we're part of this massive creation. And the whole thing is dancing continuously, continuous flow. Everything arising and passing continuously, shape-shifting, changing forms. We're part of this dance of creation. We are not separate from this. The loneliness we feel often on retreat is this sort of, I call it a coming home loneliness. It's like, why do I feel separate? Even here with all these people, it's like, this agony of the separation. Because right? somehow we've cut ourselves off from the rest of the universe. Somehow I'm over here. You know, I'm the bad one. Or somehow we, we've separated that. All of that is illusion of ego. It's all a play of the mind. That's the, that's the part of our mind that needs healing. So everything is appearing and disappearing continuously continuously. This is from the Diamond Sutra called Conditioned Existence. So this is how everything is, including our own life. A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom in a dream. Thus shall you view all conditioned existence. So it's hard to see ourselves as that, right? A flickering lamp. A flickering lamp is very not so stable, right? We see lamps go out. Right? A flash of lightning in a summer cloud. We appear, we disappear. Things appear, they disappear. On retreat is so beautiful that we can start to see this. One time I was on retreat here and I was doing walking meditation. And uh, this has happened to several teachers. I remember even hearing Joseph talk about this later. And we had the same experience of walking along, it was like before lunch. And suddenly the thought came the time, the day just is gone. Disappeared. There's no such thing as breakfast. It's like it's just gone. Really, there's just the moment. The other, the morning was just a concept, right? The time was gone. It's like, It was just an insight into that. It was like, wow, everything really is impermanent. So let's look at our practice on retreat and how we see impermanence here clearly. How many mind states have you had today? We say this all the time. It's like we have to keep remembering. Wake up, we're happy. Morning, we're bored. Then we're maybe crying. Then we're joyful again. Then maybe uh, greed arises at lunch, and then that passes. And then there's generosity and joy. It's continuously moving. As James was saying in his talk when he went to Joseph, it's changing. right? There's this constant roller coaster ride that we're on. Arising and passing, whole stories appear. You could be sitting, having a peaceful moment, and then out of the ethers, out of the emptiness of the mind, whole story. Right? And then dissolves again. And then another story appears, and the movie. And it all feels so real. Have you noticed that? It seems so real. I think it's so important to see this again and again. My practice has gotten easier because now I really use this mantra. It's all just a dream. Nothing is happening. You know, and that's the beautiful thing about it. when you, you go to the movies. It's such a great, using movies as an analogy of how the mind works is so great. Because you know you sit outside the marquee and you go, well, what will we feel like? Drama, comedy, you know, what does the mind want right now? Oh, not nothing too deep. Oh, maybe I do something really deep. Let's do a documentary, you know, or you know, whatever. And you go, but say it's just a regular movie, and you go in the theater, and it all just appears on the screen, right? And it looks like something's really happening—the drama, and the sound, and the and the, you know, the whole arc of the story. They live and die in romance, and this whole life lived, right? And if you turn around and look, it's just a display of light and image. If you look, it's just being projected. Nothing is happening. The mind is the same way. The Buddha said movie after movie. The Buddha didn't say movie after movie. (laughs) Thought after thought. (laughs) They're just the mind tricks. It's just a play of consciousness. So what happens is that when we're on retreat, this weird phenomena happens where we start to see a movie appear, and we go, oh, no this is going to be the movie that's going to play for three months, right? There's a contraction, right? Or if we feel an emotion, I can remember feeling sadness and being like, oh, my God, for three months, all I'm going to do is feel this suffering, right? But then in an hour, it's gone. And even though we see that, we still, the moment something arises, we think this is permanent. This is a permanent state. This is how it is. And we really suffer in that. So we actually could get really afraid of our emotions because we don't see them as passing. We see them as being real. We see them as lasting forever. This is how it's going to be, even if we have a beautiful experience. Say we 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 have a, a sitting, we experience bliss and love and light, and we think this is how it's going to be from now on. Right? It's, it goes both ways. Like. This is what they've been talking about. Oh, yeah, okay, here I am. Let's just put it in cruise control. Three months of this, yay. And we plan the next 20 years of our life on retreat based on that mind state. And then it goes, like all things do. And we think, people come on retreat, what did I do, Spring? How did, what, it was going so great. Maybe I should sit by the window again. It was that breeze, and I felt calm. Or (laughs) I had that extra cushion, so my body, you know, we we try to recreate it. But it's like, oh, it's gone, friend. Such is the nature of life. It changes. So everything passes. It's so important to see this. Everything arises. Everything passes. Nothing stays. I remember once being on retreat. Um, Sylvia Bornstein uh, is another teacher that I really adore her. She's in her 70s and she's just so wise, but she told this story once about being very young, and uh, she has a lot of just natural wisdom. This story illustrates that clearly. So she talked about being, uh, she was married very young, and had four children at a very young age, pretty close together. So she said, here she was, this young mother at home with four children. I think all of them were under six at the same time. And it was one of those days where they were all having meltdowns at the same time. And they didn't want to be put down, but they didn't want to be picked up. It was just no, you know, and she just thought, oh my goodness, you know, this is a lot. And so she got out this, she had been doing a little art project, and she got out this yellow paint and decided to climb up on this ladder in her kitchen and paint in Hebrew, this too shall pass, (laughs) right? And so, of course, her children see her up there on the ladder painting. They get curious. Well, what are you doing? And that became a dharma talk on letting go and impermanence, right, for her, for her children, like, this will pass. But to have the wisdom to see that in that moment, this is just one of those days, right? And not to think for 20 years, oh, my God, it's going to be like this. Why did I have four kids? This is hard. You know, it was like, this too shall pass. It's just another experience. So that's not how it was in my house. So I deeply appreciated uh, that wisdom. Of yes, what a great teaching! And also, you know, when I, I in California, I'd like to teach the teen retreats at Spirit Rock a lot. First, I, I like to support the next generation of uh, young practitioners. Uh, but sometimes people come on our retreats and they get nervous as staff because it seems like around day two or three. Everybody starts crying. Whatever is going to arise, that's the big piece. You know how it is. It all starts unfolding, and the emotions will be really intense. And they'll say, Is this okay? You know, everyone's crying. What's going on? You know, I was like, Oh, it'll be fine. There's no need to worry. It'll all pass. Right? So we'll, and sure enough, the person will see the same person maybe they saw at lunchtime, and it's a joy again. (laughs) Right? And so, as I does not need to get worried. It arises. It'll pass. Everything. So for me, this helps me get very close to suffering. This helps me get very close to difficult emotions, because I think to myself, spring, you know this will pass. So I can investigate it. I can be with other people. At very intense times, my capacity to be with difficulty has expanded. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, yes, this is arising. And yes, this will pass. Even if it's sobbing, whatever is happening, terror, it won't last forever. And I remind myself of that. And there's a great strength uh, from that. So we start to see ourselves here on retreat, everything arising, everything passing. Our views and opinions changed over time. What well, we once thought, we no longer think. Stories um, about who we are change. I found this great clipping that was actually in the staff lounge. It's in the it was published by the Southern Poverty Law Center and it was a little newsletter. I know you can't see it from here. But it's a story entitled "A Skinhead Rejects Racism and Seeks Redemption," with the help of the SPLC. So, on the cover is a before and after picture of this person. And this person was—I'll um, just read a little bit. Of it for four years, for years, Brian Welger thrived on hate as a violent skinhead, a razor carrier, carrying enforcer who helped organize other racist gangs around the country. His hate was etched on his face in the form of tattoos with racist and violent themes. So the, basically, a picture is covered in all these racist tattoos. He looks like actually like a monster, like a demon. And, um, so, but with the help of the SPLC, he changed. And he got help. And there's an after picture where he endured two years of um, having the tattoos removed. And then there's an after picture of him. And he looks radiant. I was like, wow. And he risked his life, actually, to leave that. And then there's an article that goes on and even shows him paying homage at a civil rights museum in front of pictures of Dr. Martin Luther King. What a change. Like, this is how we are. We Our views and it, we change. Things are impermanent. To go from that, to be a leader, and, and to even tattoo swastikas on your face, to going to being you know, at museums of tolerance and and trying to live your life completely different. He got married and had children, and that changed him. He didn't want to pass that on to the next generation of people. So I was really touched by that article. And that gave me hope, like, ah, we change. Of course we change. Everything's changing. So, one of the aspects also that you'll see on retreat is your need to control experience. <laughs> right? We live under this deluded view that we can control things. This is not so. We can control our reaction to things, but we cannot control what arises and what passes. And this is deeply frustrating for us. You know, this creates a lot of turmoil because just when we have it all figured out, it shifts again, right? like, oh, how can I make it stay? This is by Pema Children. She writes in her book, When Things Fall Apart, she wrote this. We know that all is impermanent. We know that everything wears out. Although we can buy this truth intellectually, emotionally, we have a deep-rooted aversion to it. We want permanence. We expect permanence. Our natural tendency is to seek security. We believe we can find it. To put it concisely, we suffer when we resist the noble and irrefutable truth of impermanence and death. We expect that what is always changing should be graspable and predictable. We are born with a craving for resolution and security that governs our thoughts, words, and actions. We are like people in a boat that is falling apart, trying to hold on to water. So this need to control experience is kind of futile. We waste a lot of time doing that. We suffer in that. There is a story about this little girl uh, with her mother at a park, and there was a fountain there. And there was a high fountain, and there was maybe four feet of water, so three or four feet of water in the fountain. And the little girl is walking along the edge of the fountain, you know, as children do. She's about five. And her mother says, Oh, honey, be, you know, you should come down. I don't want you to fall into the fountain. She says, Oh, I won't. And she continues walking along the edge and then falls in. Okay. So then obviously that's a big shock. So the mother gets her out and she says, honey, are you OK? She said, the little girl says, yes, mommy, I was very scared. But then this voice said, have fun falling. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of our task here. <laughs> Can we have fun falling down? Because we will again and again and again. And I think that's the thing is trying to break us of the habit of not being okay with falling down. That falling down is the way of it. So look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses like ripe human beings. But please let's not act so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed, as though life had broken her secret promise to us. So there's this, there is this acting betrayed. Have you noticed when things change? We kind of that's when the tantrum really starts. We throw ourselves down. Why? You're right? When a relationship dissolves, something changes. We get fired. Right? Our friends decide they don't want to hang out with us anymore. Whatever it is, the million things is constantly changing. Even with relationships, they come together, people dance for a while, and then they separate. Even if you dance with someone your entire life, death will separate you. It's not permanent. No one, nothing is permanent. We arise and we pass. So can we not be betrayed when the truth of be- impermanence arises? When all of our metta goes and there's pure hatred in the mind, oh, right? Again, self-hatred for the billionth time. And then we go, I don't want it, right? Ah, oh, impermanence. This is what's arising. Can I meet it? Can I be with it? Joseph was right when he said his little famous teaching, anything can happen at any time. <laughs> anything. And this is hard for us to deal with. You know, we have these five senses with our body. We're always hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, smelling. And really, when we leave our home or go out into the world or anywhere, we can't control what, really, we can't control what arises in those sense doors. We see a sound. I mean, we hear a sound. We see a sight. Some are pleasant. Some are unpleasant. I have this funny story. Uh, I was on a pilgrimage uh, in India a couple of years ago, and um, we were at Nalanda University, this old university where all these great masters taught. We were actually in the ruins. Again, all is impermanent. Now it was just ruined, you know, almost flat buildings. And so there's this beautiful park outside, and I'm sitting with a dear friend of mine and uh, we're, we're just out in the park, and it's one of those beautiful days, and we're like, wow, it's so perfect, right? We're just sitting there in the sun, reflecting on the history, and all these great scholars who came from this institution, and the Buddha Deva, and all, all these beautiful teachers, and so my friend is actually uh, quite beautiful. She's Egyptian. She kind of looks a bit like a Some kind of magical being, you know, she's just very striking. So we're sitting there, and then all of a sudden, there's this man, and he proceeds to almost sit directly in front of us and just stare. (laughs) So you can imagine you're this open space, and then someone sits down and just starts staring, not saying anything, but just staring. And in that moment, we both cracked up because we got it. Yeah, this is unpleasant. Like, here we are in this beautiful space, it was all perfect. You can't control this. It right? was like it'd be so perfect if he wasn't just sitting here staring at us. Like, we both had that same thought because India, you surrender, right? All of your senses, right? Sense of smell, everything is just bombarded. And if you don't just go with it, you will suffer. You have no control. You just go. So it was just a, a funny moment. So trying to control conditions, outer conditions, is futile, it's painful because things change continuously. So basically with this law of impermanence, the teachings, we learn to just let go. Let go, let go. This is also my mantra. The essence of the whole of the Dharma is let go. Okay, so how do we do that? That's the key. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. Impeccability, ruthless impeccability. Ajahn Chah says, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end." So this letting go, oftentimes I chant a mantra to myself, let go, let go, spring. The universe is in control here. We are not. This is the hard thing for the ego to grasp. You mean we're not the masterminds of this? No, we're not. We're along for the ride. It's like experiencing life with awareness, with openness. Well, what's happening? Okay, can I be with it? Okay, can I be with this? Okay, this is really hard. Can I be with it? This is really beautiful. Can I be with this? Being with loving states is just as difficult for us as the hard ones. Can we open to the love that's so powerful inside of us, is so bright? Right? We have as much difficulty with that as we do being with craving. So letting go, letting go is so key. Can we let go? When I was very young, uh, I have a a sister who was very close in age to me. That were, were very, very. She was one of my dearest friends. And so when we were young, I was always talking her into things. And what we used to do is, with some of our neighbors, would take us to the theme parks. I had this thing about roller coasters. I said, like, let's go on the highest, fastest. You know, and she had a fear of heights. But somehow, every time I would talk her into getting on, and usually it would be the same story, you know, regret after, she'd be shaking and clenching. And so I remember I said, okay, we got to the theme park again. I said, remember, everything's gonna be okay just let's go on again. So somehow she would always forget till two minutes right before we were about to launch. She would scream, get me off. But the guy who was running the, the you know, roller coaster, it was too late. Once you're strapped in, you can't get off. You know, you're know you heading out. And so I can remember here we're going on this giant roller coaster. And this thought is so vivid. It was so funny to me. And so we're going, and she's gripped in fear, right? And so everybody else is screaming in joy, you know? And I said, so we're coming up to this big part, you know, ee, 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 right before you go <laughs> a thousand miles an hour in circles. And, and I remember I looked at her, and her name is Hope. I said, Hopey, all you have to do is let go. Put your arms in the air. It'll be so fun. And so we're about to go, right? And so my arms were in the air, like, woo And for a second, she did it. It was like something lifted and she put her arms in the air and, and let go. You know, and about halfway through, she started screaming again and holding on. <laughs> but when we got off, she said, I think I did it. I let go a little. And I was like, It's fun when we let go. That's the joy of life, when we let go. Holding on is suffering. Holding on to anything is suffering. Because it's going to change anyway, no matter how much we cry, we kick, we scream, we beg, we plead with God, please, please, we pray on the ground for something to not go that's going, it goes, it changes. It's not the way of it. And so that was a really, uh, this has been a very important teaching for me. So, um, a couple, about eight or nine months ago, I got a call from the editor, Barbara Jordan, of Inquiring Mind, of a, a Vipassana magazine. Some of you may have seen it. It has beautiful articles in there, and it just has um, lots of stuff about sitting groups. And she called me and she said, We're doing an issue on enlightenment, and I'd like for you to write a, an article. I was like, enlightenment? Oh, no, well, I don't really have anything to say. You know, Jack was writing articles for it, and Joseph. I was like, she's like, oh, we really want you to get your voice in as a younger generation teacher. And there must be something you could say on the topic. And I was like, oh, well, no. And she said, well, think about it. And I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know. And so then I thought, oh, yeah, there was this one time. And I, I called her back. I said, okay, I have something. I'll, I'll write about it. And I said it was a very short experience, or very quick. And she said that's okay because we only need 500 words, <laughs> so short and sweet is fine. And I said okay. So this experience that I had was uh, one time my friend and I. This is maybe five years ago. We were uh, we had a little cabin. We went up to this cabin a friend of ours had, and we were just going to do a weekend of sitting and walking practice, and. Uh, we had it all set up, and we, we, we started, and we were doing sitting and walking. It was in this beautiful little forest a couple hours outside of San Francisco, and just so serene and so peaceful. Both of us live in... The, at that time, we were both living in San Francisco, and it just felt like such a nice place to be for a change of pace. And and so I remember I was sitting on the deck outside, and he was doing um, walking meditation. and. Suddenly, as I looked at him, as if this huge understanding of impermanence came. And I was watching him, and this insight arose, it rose from somewhere so deep inside. And it arose like this. It said, hello, goodbye. I said hello, goodbye. And as I looked at him, I thought, oh, this is my dear friend. Hello. One day we will part. And then a, everything I realized was hello, goodbye. And I remember looking at the trees, and it was hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye. And for a long time, I think I actually, there was, it was so intense I, I was paralyzed for about four or five minutes because in my mind flashed everything that I had ever known. Every person I'd ever known was hello, goodbye. And it took me a few moments to realize my face was flooded with tears at the poignancy of everything was hello-goodbye. That we meet life, we appear in these forms, we have these families, and we say hello to them, and then we start to say goodbye to them. And everything was hello-goodbye. And I remember trying to explain this to my friend, right? Like, stop, like after, you know, you've got to understand this hello-goodbye something happened. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is the moment we're waiting for, hello, goodbye, right? And I tried to explain it, it, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But it was hard for him to get it. And so for two days, I was in this state of real unbearable ecstasy because I saw the poignance of hello, goodbye. Everything that arose, I remember I would see a cat walking across the street, and I would say, hello, goodbye. I would see everything and go, hello, like what a beautiful display of creation. I would see flowers in the crack of the ground and go, hello, goodbye. It was as if I was seeing everything new and everything was this magical appearance and everything was arising and passing. Arising and passing. And I remember trying to call people on the phone. I don't recommend doing that when something like that happens. I can remember calling up my brother and going, "You have to get hello, goodbye. You're it's all impermanent." And he was like, "Okay, you know, well, I gotta go." And I was like, "Nobody understands hello, goodbye." And in that moment, I understood all the mystics in the world, actually those who are on the Ganges who don't really have much to say or they're in some mystical state, I thought, they must understand hello, goodbye. And there's not much to say when you see this. It's just really hello, goodbye. It's like, it's all passing. It's all so short. And so I was in this state for two days, and I don't think I could have handled much more, actually. And then it started to fade. You know, and I went back to my normal. It was as if a window opened, right? I thought this is what me of what enlightened people feel like. This is why they don't cling to anything, because they see it as a blip of an appearance, like it's arising and passing. Hello, goodbye. They don't hold on to people. They love them. But what happened in that was that I loved everything so much more because it was impermanent. Like all the people around me, I was living at that time right near Golden Gate Park and I remember walking in the park going, hello, goodbye, you know, and I was still in that state and seeing people playing guitars and out and, and I would just look at all of them like they were the most beautiful beings. The whole thing was beautiful. This is the show. Ah, hello. And then goodbye. This is temporary. All these beings will pass. This is a glimpse, a blip in time. And so when it went back to my normal mode, the effect of that insight lasted. There was some part of me that just stopped clinging as much as I had before. You know, it didn't liberate my mind, but what it did was it took a big, a big piece of my craving and grasping lessened, and that's what insight does. Over time, it, it, it cuts down the diluted parts of the mind. It was like some big part was taken out, and I started to understand better what the Buddha was pointing to. Like, oh, this is all impermanent. So when we see these things, we begin to let go. We begin to let go of our roles. I'm Mr. So and So. I'm Miss So and So. Right? I have point three something somethings. I, you know, we let we start, all of that just begins to dissolve. Right? We're just human beings. Right? Appearing. We let go of ourselves. So to a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild. And her compassion is exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. So with this quality of really understanding, things are changing. And even in, on, in deep practice, there was a time I was sitting with Upandita, this fierce teacher that they talk about a lot, Saida Upandita. He's from Burma. I did a month and a half retreat with him. And it's a, it is a beautiful experience in a lot of ways. But there's this part on the stages of insight where you see impermanence so closely that even the ground under your feet begins to feel like it's dissolving. You start to see everything clearly. You start to see the change. And I remember being on retreat, and everything started going 1,000 miles an hour in my meditation. I remember going in, and I'm like, what's going on? It's like, oh, you're seeing how quickly it's changing. It was like It was just the strangest phenomena to me, and then talking to other teachers later, they say, Yeah, the stages of insight, people often get stuck there because every they start to see the truth of reality, the quick the change changing so quick it's just dissolving one moment after another moment, and we can get very afraid in that right it's like a crack in our reality, Ah, we start clinging, right we' like, put it back together again, right. I don't want to see anymore. I just want to go back to clinging. you know It's like too late. He kind of looks over at the edge already. And so but what happens if we can learn to just flow into that, a lot of equanimity develops. impermanence leads to equanimity. We stop clinging. We learn to see the truth, and our mind let's go. The Buddha talked about that everything's always changing. You know, we talked about these eight worldly winds that are always blowing by. Praise, blame, success and failure, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, like all of these you experience in your life. It's all changing, right? All switching around. One time you're loved, the next time you're hated, right? It's all, everything happens to everybody. This is the, the play of consciousness. So we can even sometimes cling to the teachings in an unhealthy way, right? It's like you use the teachings as a vehicle. You look to what the Buddha was pointing to. You don't cling to it. You say, oh, he's pointing to this road here. Okay, here we go. But we don't cling to it. There's even a way within Buddhism people can get very feisty about it, you know? I remember when this teacher, just to give you another story, um, Kempo Soltram Gyamato Gyamso Rinpoche, he's this great yogi and scholar, and he came to uh, Marin. This was about nine years ago. I was kind of more, I didn't know that much about practice. Anyway, they told me that he had spent like 10 years in a cave, and he was introduced uh, by these teachers, and I was like, oh, great, you know, two days of teaching, he's a famous scholar. Surely he'll give these discourses for hours and I'll get it, you know, I'll, I'll get it. You know how we can get, you know, come to something where we're like, I'm going to get it now, whatever it is. And so I remember he was just this a sweet little man, very tiny, maybe five feet tall. He was just sitting on the stage. And when I came into where they were giving the teachings, there was all these toys on the stage. And I thought, oh, toys, that's really funny. Why would this great scholar, have all these toys, and people brought him toys, so obviously he liked them, but he had this one toy that was one of those, you pressed a button, and it was this little gorilla, and it would, it had these little uh, bells, and it would go like this, and it would sing, wild thing, <laughs> and uh, he seemed to be really fascinated by that, right, so he's sitting on the stage, and, and basically the teaching starts, I'm waiting, like, clinging on to some idea that he's going to talk some great discourse with subtleties of mind or something. So he was just sitting there for a long time. And then he would say, okay, let's sing some songs. And then we would sing these, like, in my mind, they seemed a little sappy. They were like, we will meet in the pure lands and be Buddhas. And and he loved to sing these songs. So and then, And then he didn't really say that much. He would just kind of look at us and 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 say a few more things, and then a few minutes later, he would press the little monkey, the gorilla, and it would go "wow thing," and he would giggle and giggle. This went on for two days, and I remember after the first day, I was like, "I can't go back. What? Like, this is so boring." And I was tired, and I had all these mind states and. And everyone's like, he's enlightened. He's enlightened. This is great. This is great. I was like, but he's not saying anything. (laughs) Okay. So then the next day, basically there was more songs. He brought this whole other songbook, and we spent like hours singing these songs, and some were Mila songs, and he just seemed to be enjoying that so much. And he would just say a few things like, relax, you know, every now and then, and then hit the gorilla again, (laughs) and I would just go. And so he was leaving at the end of the teaching, and we were bowing, and I kid you not, after all that complaining, as soon as he left, I started spontaneously crying, going, I miss him. (laughs) And I said, I think maybe he was teaching me to let go. Like, I had all this grasping, like, coming in, like, he's going to teach me, And, and the teaching was very simple. Like... I guess there's not a lot to say. We might as well just play with the toys, and (laughs) I was like, let go, right? And I really like something in me, like I got it. Like I think I'm trying too hard to figure it out. And uh, my friends had the same insight. Like, yeah, maybe we just need to let go, like. (laughs) So I so appreciated that in a way, you know. But it took two days of just really. So now I look back very fondly. Uh, on that. So even in the Buddha's life, his final teaching was a teaching on impermanence. You know, and I was on my pilgrimage a couple years ago with some friends. We went to Krishnagar. And Krishnagar was where the Buddha died. And I always think about that time like, wow, like a great tree fell. You know this great being who awakened his mind and taught and uh, for the benefit of everyone, turned the wheel of the Dharma. And so I was in Krishnagar, and there's a beautiful temple there, and the Buddha have this beautiful statue. It's quite large, maybe about the size of this stage and um, in this little shrine and, and the Buddha's lying on his side and you can go in and sit. And I remember sitting in there just kind of meditating, looking at the statue and, and you know, just, just thinking about the impermanence of the whole thing. And then last night I was reading for a long time the, the Paranavana Sutra, Sutta, where it was the Buddha's, the whole process of the Buddha, the last basically three months of his life. Where he told people, "I'm going to be dying," you know, and he taught and he went to different places. It was kind of like an all-out three-month, last-ditch effort to give all the teachings, you know, that he had, and and to talk to his disciples. So here's what he wrote. He said, he was talking to his uh, beautiful attendant Ananda. He said, "Now I am frail, Ananda, old, aged, far gone in years." This is my 80th year, and my life is spent. Even as an old card, Ananda is held together with much difficulty. So the body of the Tathagata, how he referred to himself, is kept only going with supports. It is Ananda only when the Tathagata, disregarding external objects with the cessation of certain feelings, attains to and abides in signless concentration of mind that his body is comfortable. So he's saying only when he goes into deep samadhi is his body even comfortable. So he was saying to Ananda this time when he was going to die, he was in Krishnagar, and there was many beings came to pay homage to him. It wasn't only people in physical form, but apparently miles for miles there was devas, and all the heaven realms had came. And it said that many of them were weeping and crying, that it was a shock to see this great being pass. There was some even sense that he would last forever. Like, ah, the Buddha's dying? What does this mean for me, right? Like, death, my goodness. Even Ananda, who knew, that the Buddha was dying, went off in the corner and was weeping, right? Like, oh, my teacher is passing. So this is what the Buddha said to Ananda. He had some of his attendants when he said, hey, where's Ananda? You know, here, where he's lying there and getting ready to go into meditation and basically pass away. They, he said, where's Ananda? And they said, oh, he's over there crying. And he said, go get him, go get him. So here's what he said to his cousin and his attendant for, I think, over 30 years. Then the Blessed One spoke to Venerable Ananda, saying, Enough, Ananda. Do not grieve. Do not lament. For have I not taught from the very beginning that with all that is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation, and severance? Of that which is born, come into being, compounded, and subject to decay, how can one say, May it not come to dissolution. There can be no such state of things. Now for a long time, Ananda, you have served the Tathagata with loving kindness indeed, deed, word and thought, graciously, pleasantly, with a whole heart and beyond measure. Great good have you gathered, Ananda. Now you should put forth energy, and soon you too will be free from the taints. So as he was talking to him, he was telling him this to comfort him in some way, like everything I've always said, what arises passes, what is born dies, everything, everything. This building one day will pass away. We will pass away. This concept of who we are passes away, another form, everything. Nothing is that arises does not pass. The only thing that is permanent, they say, is the peace of Nibbana. And that's the one thing that's not conditioned. And that is the lasting quality, Buddhahood. So we can take some refuge in that. So then as the scene plays out, more and more the Buddha starts to go into Samadhi, lying down. And they say all the flowers started to bloom. So as I'm sitting in Kushnagar, I'm imagining that. Like, wow, this great being, and all these people are weeping. And he's trying to explain to them, yes, this is the truth of impermanence. So he starts to go. He starts to get ready to go. And this took many hours as he was in this process of dying. But his final words that he uttered, this is what he says. And the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus, saying, Behold now, bhikkhus. I exhort you, all compounded things are subject to vanish. Strive on with earnestness. And then they said with that, he went into the first level meditation and then into the jhanas and then passed away uh, quite peacefully there. But that was the final thing he said. His last words was about impermanence. All things are subject to vanish. And so that was a huge teaching for them. They thought, my goodness, even the devas, and, the, and they say that the devas were even commenting, like, my goodness, this great being is subject to decay. We, too, are. So our own death is a part of this process, right? Just as we born, we are born, we pass. Death is certain, the time unknown. We live in a lot of illusion around that. We think we make plans for 10 years out, some of us, five years. We don't know. People appear here and disappear just like that, right? Impermanence. So let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway. And the cost, too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. So the wild dance of no hope is the dance you have to figure out on your own here. (laughs) Something like letting go. I think it looks something like when we're on the roller coaster and we just put our hands in the air and stop holding on. Like, we get out of our own way. So, impermanence. So, let's just sit together for just a moment. And the blessed one addressed the bhikkhus by saying, behold now bhikkhus, I exhort you, all compounded things are subject to vanish, strive with earnestness.